This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Blank Podcast, the podcast where we delve into those difficult moments with some well-known guests. My name is Giles Pay Phillips, and with me is my co-host, co-anchor, co-producer, <laughs> co-star, Miranda Jim Daly. Hello. I don't know if any. I don't know if any of those are true. I guess we are. We are sort of producers by default, I guess, aren't we? And stars by default. I don't know. Uh, but what, that's very what, kind. Thank you. Yeah. What is the I mean, the producer puts the thing together, right? Yeah, writes it and just makes it all happen. Well, obviously, you know? don't write anything. Um, that's that's obvious. <laughs> that's not um, our style. <laughs> <laughs> not what we um, do. So that 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 doesn't. So that part of the job description is we can cross off. Puts yeah. it together that 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 part we do. Obviously, we we source the guests and um, arrange it and add administrate that kind of bit. And also we record it. So mm. that bit we can tick off. And then I suppose putting it out there and drumming up a bit of support. That is that part of the producer's mm, job? No, that's marketing really, isn't it? I think that's more... So we're marketers PR. as well then? PR, so it's not just production. Editors. Um, yeah, pretty much pretty much everything. All rounders. It'd be great if we got some money for this, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it would be as if we're doing about 10 people's jobs at the same time. Um no, we're doing very well. You keep sending me updates from the sort of various um, iTunes uh, charts from around the world, and we were number one in Finland for a bit, and number one and in Cyprus. Cyprus, you know, amazing. So thank you if you're listening in these in these uh, other countries. It's it's lovely to know that people out there are, are listening it, to the pod. It, thank you. It's crazy. We are actually listening to in 167 countries. I That's mean, that mad. alone is a bit of a weird thing, isn't it? That That's that amazing. You and I are. I mean, obviously, we can't travel at the moment, but our voices are traveling across the world and people are listening to us in their ears. Our voices are well, more well-traveled than we are, which is yeah. uh, a bit annoying. No, but no, thank you so much. Everyone listens. We, we have such lovely 
lovely listeners and supportive, you know, audience. And we, we really, really do appreciate that. And we're going to read out some tweets in a minute, actually. Mm. So let's, I've done that, tried to remember that earlier this time. But it's interesting um, talking about podcasts because we have got podcast royalty on the show today. Yes. It is the incredible Deborah Francis White, who is obviously also known as the Guilty Feminist. She has the Guilty Feminist podcast, which is a platform for um, lots and lots of amazing female comedians. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we talk on this podcast about sort of the changing landscapes, really, when it comes to that. Mm. And, and, and I mean, you know, some of the stuff she says about the sort of lack of opportunities for sort of female performers and creators is mm. is shocking really to be honest and I'm stark i thought it was incredibly stark uh you know when she's talking about the industry and, and the, like you say the lack of opportunities for people um for for women and and, and um diversity of all sorts you know yeah not getting the opportunities that they so richly deserve because there's so much talent out there and i mean like, particularly near the end where she said that um you know these lost voices these lost yeah uh bits of material that you know um and i think that you could probably say that about you know other industries as well my industry you know my industry the the, the writing industry it's it, I, there's baby steps to improve those things but there's still a lot long way to go and you know um a lot of people like you know like deborah are having to sort of make their own work absolutely yeah but i mean their own she, creations yeah. she has been a real sort of inspiration you know and, and, and the work she's done with guilty feminist podcast is helping to change things and she's absolutely fantastic and her insight into the industry on this podcast is absolutely fascinating and and talking about her own upbringing as well. It's a really, really interesting and eye-opening episode mm. and, I, I, and I'm sure that our listeners will will, will find it fascinating and, and, and Deborah's obviously a massive talent as well. So we're very, yeah. very lucky that she gave us her time and, and really, really appreciate it. And it's just, yeah, it's an absolutely fantastic episode. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Deborah. It's been, it was a real treat to talk to you. Thank you. Um, I've got a, I've got a tweet here. Okay. Jim, it's from Jess Parkin. She says, favorite phrase from Susie Dent episode has to be miffle maffle, <laughs> which means not knowing what you're doing, but pretending to look busy. Uh, <laughs> seems very fitting right now. But actually quite fitting for the podcasts generally for me, because I, I, <laughs> I try and pretend I know what I'm doing, where clearly I don't. <laughs> I think you do. We've done enough of these now. That I think you know what you're doing. But um, yeah, that was it miffle maffle? I that's, beg that's... to differ. No, you know exactly what you're doing. Um, miffle maffle, yeah. I, I, I can definitely relate to that, though, across sort of my life and career massively. Uh, miffle maffle, that's great. Um, I mean, to be can fair... You be, if, can if, if can you we fo- verb it, though? Can we make it miffle maffling? Like, if you're... you're I you, think you, so. Miffle maffling? You could ask, you could ask Susie that, but um, I'm pretty mm. sure we could definitely, could definitely do that. But, I mean, you need to follow Susie Dent. I'm sure most of our listeners do already, but if you don't on Twitter for her words of the day, because they are absolutely fantastic. And Amazing, yeah. She's... She, you can tell she curates it and picks very applicable words to current life on, in lockdown as well. So um, that's that's one I'm going to be adding to my uh, to my rep- repertoire. Um, here's a tweet from Stephen Purden, who says, "Nice morning walk with the dog, listening to Noel Clark on Blank Pod. Inspirational and honest interview. Get subscribed, troops. Uh, thank you, Stephen. That's uh, that was very kind. And yeah, I mean, Noel was a another inspirational guest and um, just an absolute legend." Oh, brilliant, brilliant stuff from Noel. Yeah, it was a fantastic episode. Um, he, and he was multitasking, I remember. Yeah, he was on the on the bike, wasn't he, as well? Yeah. At the same time. Yeah. Uh, yeah which amazing. Are, mate, yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of a no excuse to the rest of us, isn't it? You know, if he, yeah, exactly. if he can hold, if he can give us a fantastically inspirational and insightful interview while working out, we can all do better with our multitasking. <laughs> exactly. It's definitely an excuse that I use to not get um, exercise done. Um, 
But anyway, shall we crack on with this week's get another inspirational person mm. uh, and insightful and uh, just an absolute legend of the comedy scene and we're delighted that she joined us this is the fantastic deborah francis white on the black podcast um how are you have you been have you been coping do you know um i find the pandemic um I find the lockdown up and down, you know, there's there's been a lot to take from it in terms of letting our brains sit in the one space for a, a little time and not, I was charging around the world at a great pace. And mm. if I were in, if I, if I was in London, I was charging around London at a great pace and I was completely overcommitted. And so, you know, I've been able to focus on projects uh, in a more measured way in the last year, which has been very good for my brain. I don't think I ever want to go back to the way I was working before. So, and nothing would have stopped me except it being illegal. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. there's that, there's that silver lining to this enormous, horrendous, toxic, uh, fatal for many people cloud, you know, and we, we're human beings. We are, does we are somehow rather, no, we're survivors. That's what human beings are. That's yeah. why we're mm. very successful species on this planet. Too successful, <laughs> as it would turn out. Um, yeah. We're killing the planet with our success yeah. yes. um, at our own survival. We're very, very good at surviving, and we're very good at meeting our own needs, and we're very good at short-term satisfaction, going, what can I have right now? And uh, um, at the cost of others, at the cost of our future, at the cost of... Uh, the, the literal in home that we live in, we, we what, what do I want to do right now? What what will make me feel good right now? Um, and so uh, uh, we are experts in, I think, in surviving and feeding our needs and our wants and our desires. Um, and so what that means is, uh, is that sometimes um, when something terrible happens, uh, we have mechanisms in place to say okay what can we take from this or what can we learn from this or how can mm. we grow from this or how can we how can we find something in this so um yeah i mean like like most extremely privileged human beings who have a warm home enough to eat and um and even more than that in my case uh, uh a creative career I found ways of making um, small quantities of lemonade out of a very large helping of lemons. Yeah. Oh, for, I, a second, I th- for a second, I thought you meant literally. <laughs> like people have been doing sort of banana bread. I thought maybe you were no, literally making lemonade. Sorry. No, but, uh, this no. is metaphorical Beyonce <laughs> lemonade, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, have you found it a good... I'm talking about creativity. I've been incredibly creative over this period. Have you found that you've been it's been good for you creatively uh in some ways yeah i miss my audience desperately i didn't at first actually i was i'd been on tour for so long and i'd been in i actually was secretly grateful just to stop and stay in one place and my friends who are comedians were going oh my god i miss the audience immediately and i was like "I, i do of course i missed i'm you know we were meant to be touring the uk last may and the previous year's tour had been off I mean, just phenomenal. It was wild. It was amazing. 
So of course I was sad I wasn't doing it, but my body was kind of grateful. My body was like, mm. oh my God, you're just staying in one place. And I didn't have this instant reaction that some people had, which is I need it, I need it now. But now it's, you know, it's been a year. This time last year, I was playing uh, the Enmore Theatre in Sydney, 2000 seats, Julia Gillard guesting. I was playing the Wellington Arena. I'd never even been to Wellington before, f- sold out the arena. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing. And now it's been a year. And, you know, I've done some gigs. I did a, I did a March gig at the Royal Festival Hall last year. That was the last gig we did, um, I think, pretty much. The last big gig we did. And I think it's International Women's Day to International Women's Day nearly coming up that we won't, I won't have really performed except for some outdoor gigs and some socially distanced gigs in the summer that were lovely to do, but it's not the same, is it? It's not the same as playing the Royal Albert Hall. No. We need to be incredibly honest about that. And it's just not the same as, it's the relaxed nature of everyone just piling into King's Place, which is our home, it's our residency. So it's, you know, if the listeners don't know, um, sort of 500 seat venue in north london which is our sort of bread and butter place you know where we go mm. it's our home yeah. and um just it was always sold out second we put it on sale it set out like that and so there was a relaxed vibe there was a relaxed feeling in mm. there you'd go in it'd be buzzing with young people who you know people of all ages who were turning up to commune as f- guilty feminists as feminists who were not uh, you know, uh, th- thinking they had to be perfect to be a force for meaningful change. Who wanted to be com- who wanted comedy, wanted to be entertained, but also want to change the world and want to feel their place in it. And it just, I don't know. I just think I, uh, uh, you know, I haven't had that in a year now. That it's just been people mm. piled in, packed together, singing at the end. Any of that, it's just gone. You know. So I, that side of it. I did a lot of my creativity with my audience, as a lot of comedians do. You create on stage, you invent on stage, you hone material on stage, and that that's gone. Mm. But it'll be back. It'll be back. I saw I saw a tweet this morning that said, "Imagine how big the way is going to be when that first pint glass smashes in the pub." Yay, in the morning. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's going to be amazing. <laughs> I think I definitely agree. I think that there's always going to be more of an appreciation from everyone for the things we missed, but. And I, I definitely have sort of tried to take a step back as well during lockdown and sort of appreciate it. But I wonder how quickly after lockdown we'll go back to just sort of what we did before and pace of life will come back and we'll just go, go into sort of similar routines. I think, I think it will probably be a slow burn back because of the nature of the, the pandemic. Mm. But when it's back back, I think it will become the Roaring Twenties. Really? People will, oh, yeah. Yeah, everyone's predicting it. All so. the yeah, epidemiologists so, are predicting it. People are going oh, wow. to go wild. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the parties, the festivals, the, the sex events, the, 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 <laughs> the, the scheduled sex events. My God, yeah. it's gonna, it yeah. is going I've to really be. I've really missed them. I have really missed them. I've really missed the scheduled <laughs> yeah. sex events. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's what happened in the 20s. You know, they had they had this, the Spanish flu and then, um, yeah. and you read all the 20s novels, no one mentions the Spanish flu. They wanted to forget about no. it. I'm telling you, no. it's going to come. No one's going to. No one's going to talk about this. It's going to be like Gatsby's parties everywhere, isn't it? It's going yeah, to be like, yeah. But in when children who are eight now are thirty, the the independent films about this period of their life of social isolation and mask wearing. There'll be a lot of mask fetish, in my opinion. In 
that when that generation is grown up, um, you know, because that was some of their earliest imagery. Um, yeah. And, you know, in terms of um, confinement and d- d- disconnection and connection and the desire for connection. And, um, yeah, yeah. But there'll also be a lot of independent films and television shows about this period because what a strange disruption to anybody's childhood. Who knows Absolutely. what it will yeah. do. Absolutely. To their creativity. It will probably disrupt it but also ignite it like most uh, trials and tribulations. They are, uh, you know, they are the stuff of art, mm. uh, but they also can disrupt artists um, from from creating in the first place. Um, who knows? But it'll be interesting to see what art is made from it. Yeah. Random question. Will you guys both continue wearing masks if, like, you've got a cold or something? Because my wife thinks that we will, it will become, masks will become more of our kind of, like, culture. And... Yeah, that's what happened in um, the Far East after um, SARS. You see, you know, I was used to fly back and forth to Australia and you'd always see people from the Far East in masks just as a standard average thing in an airport. Yeah. Um, which looked very odd to me, but now doesn't, of course. And uh, and and probably we will, you know, they just don't want to travel with, mar- you know, after SARS, they're like, no, we're, if I'm travelling, I could pick up anything. I'd rather just be safe. So I expect it will become part of the, part of the, uh, I expect it will become uh, an unexceptional option. Mm. No, I, I agree. I think it will. I think it will. But yeah, like you say, we we're kind of getting used to it now. So you know, we we do embrace some of these things. Sometimes they become norms, and and we take them on, don't we? Obviously, you grew up in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, what was what was childhood like? You were adopted at a young age. I was adopted as a baby. Yeah. I was 10 days old. Um, so I lived in a beach town, um, like home and away, with extra God. Um, <laughs> when I was 14, I my family became Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, that's a, it's a high control group. So you can't see, you can't be friends with anyone outside of it. And the punishment for leaving or contravening any of the rules is shunning. Wow. So then you're left all alone. So it's it's uh and it's it's run entirely by men. There's not a single decision in the history of the Jehovah's Witnesses that has ever been made by a woman, including when the Kingdom Hall is cleaned, uh, or wow. anything even secretarial, administrative, it's all done by men. So it's 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 a it's structurally violent. It's it's less violent than the handmaid's tale, obviously, because they still have to obey the laws of the land to some extent, but it is structurally violent and um, uh, I don't, if I'm honest, think you ever really get over it. Um, I was lucky enough to get out, um, in my twenties and go to university because I wasn't allowed to go to university. I was, I'd worked to go to university, but I, I got baptized and they said, then you can't. So my, my results from that time got me into, um, Oxford along with a bit of, you know, I had to do a couple of top up courses to make sure I was still I still had the stuff and I blanked my way through the interview I'll be absolutely honest I don't know if I should have got into Oxford if I'm honest I just blagged my way in the interview I talked a lot about Australian literature, literature which the tutor didn't know about 
Um, <laughs> and so I became the expert. Yeah. And then when he asked me things I didn't know or challenged me on, you know, a piece of poetry he'd set for me or whatever, I uh, take I took a piece of advice that someone in my improv class had given me, which is enjoy the question. They're going to have to teach you for three years, so enjoy the question. Mm. And so when I was challenged, I kind of... I improvised with him, did a kind of yes out of my face, lit up as if like him playing devil's advocate was very exciting for me. And then I think he thought, oh, this will be, this is going to be fun. Yeah. Um, uh, so I, and I remember also, cause I'd be doing a lot of improv because improv was one of the ways I escaped from the Jehovah's Witnesses actually. Cause I, when I was a Jehovah's Witness, I, I, I snuck off to improv classes cause there was improv on the television in Australia and I, not whose line it was um, Australian theater sports. It was, and so I snuck off to classes and had a book by a, key, a guy called Keith Johnston, who's like, a, you know, a, he started a school of improvisation in the 50s and 60s. Um, and I ended up getting to work with him. He's still alive. Um, he's quite old now, but he's he's still alive. He's still teaching. Um, and Keith's book was my little window of escape when I was a Jehovah's Witness because you could he taught you how to like improvise things on your own. And it made me feel, it, it gave me this little creative um, pulse. Uh, and I found ways within the Jehovah's Witnesses to be creative as well. I found um, uh, women were not allowed to speak from the platform, but we were allowed to do little plays at a meeting we had once a week, like little sketches to demonstrate we were learning how to knock on doors. So I would do, I I, I decided that um, I would make them funny. Um, and lots of sisters as we were called didn't like doing them because you know, people don't like public speaking it's scary mm -hmm. and but I loved it and I'd done lots of drama at school so I told the the brother who ran the what they called the theocratic ministry school that um if anybody called in sick or couldn't do it on the night um instead of him just covering the material which was what was normal I would step in and be like an understudy so instead of doing two of these sketches a year they were called talks but they were like little sketches instead of doing these two sketches a year I got about 12 because people were always ringing in sick because they were just too nervous yeah. and um I would write them on the night and I all I cared about was how many laughs I could get mm. and uh I was very devout I really believed in it all I was very brainwashed but I I this was my kind of creative outlet and I worked out that the Jehovah's Witnesses found nothing funnier than taking the piss out of the born-again Christians. And uh, <laughs> so I would make like the household like a born-again Christian or something like that. And then I would ask them lots of questions in a Socratic method and get them to read scripture and paint themselves into a corner and like play games like that, which they found hysterically funny. And I got asked Quite to do those at, like, big stadium conventions. It's Well, it, it is niche if you're not a Jehovah's Witness, but you'd <laughs> yeah. have to know your audience, you know, who yeah, are you playing to, you know. And we were allowed to answer questions, put your hand up and answer questions in this sort of question and answer segment. And um, I would make my answers really funny. And that was what I was known for. So I had these little outlets, but the improv, I wasn't really meant to be doing because it was worldly, but I I sort of ha had a little escape valve for a while. And then um, when I uh, left the Jehovah's Witnesses, I went straight to improv class. So, you know, I learned a lot of my... And it, the improv is the opposite of a cult. Cult is all about doing doing what has been thought through for you and saying no to everything and checking in with the your conscience and your Bible-trained conscience, in inverted mm. commas, so what the, what the Watchtower Society has told you mm. um, is right and wrong. And um, improv is all about yes and, be in the moment, there's no wrong answers, and uh, follow the story. And so... Uh, it was a it, it was the exact right thing to do. It was the exact right thing to do, and 
uh, scary, but exciting. Um, and so when I went to that Oxford interview, I, uh, I remember him saying, he said to the chap before me, who was much more, I mean, he should have got in much more than I should have. Um, he didn't, uh, but he was very uptight. He was loved literature and he knew a lot more than I did, but he was very tense and uptight and he really wanted it. And I was just going to sort of go, well, I'll have the experience of an Oxford interview. Worst case scenario, I've, you know, that's something I've done in my life. I've gone to Oxford and had an interview. And, um, I was psyched. I just got, I got that far and he was so tense with it. And he said, uh, they, at one point they asked me, the, the Don asked me, uh, can you think of any words starting with F right now? Any interesting words starting with F right now? Cause he'd, he'd misinterpreted a poem or something and he was in a terrible state. And he said, I knew that he was, what he's saying, you know, was he meaning fuck? And he's like, <laughs> so he said, I thought for ages and then I came up with this word from a DH Lawrence book, which was fribble. And he said, can you think of any other words? And I couldn't. And when they said to me, can you think of any words? They didn't say F, they said B. You know, I said, yeah, um, Bumblebee, Box, Billy Ricky, Bill, Bill, Billardi, Bill, you know, and I just <laughs> opened my mouth because I'd learnt, you know, if you just make yeah. the bus sound, yeah. your your brain will fill that in. Yeah. So I could go really fast and come up with lots of randoms. And um, uh, that seems impressive, but it's not if you just, if you practice, like building a muscle, if you practice mm. it. So improv was the thing that really freed me. In, improv, you can learn so many life skills from it. It, it should almost be something that's um, compulsory in sort of the, the education system or something. Because I think even for people that don't go on to do public speaking totally. or anything like that. Yoga, it, improv and dance and singing. I mean, teach if we teach if we taught children that, being in the moment in some way or another, yeah. Yeah. anything that puts you in a flow state where you're just absolutely there and you can't, you know, for me that's dance. I don't really like meditation. I find it very boring and I can't really... I just can't be bothered with it. But dance, I can't think about anything else except I'm learning to dance through lockdown. Oh, like you? dancing to show, yeah, dancing to show tunes, tap dancing, oh, um, uh, anything that's sort of, you know, got the whiff of Broadway around it. Loving it, loving it, loving it. And uh, I do it every morning and uh, I do it with a one-on-one with the teacher because if it, in a class I get anxious that I'm holding someone else up mm. Mm, yeah, or sometimes same. you get something really quickly and it takes like, other people ages or other people get it right away and it takes you ages. And I don't know why brains are like that. There are some things that are quite complicated my brain just wants to do. And there's other things that seem very simple that my brain, I have to do them over and over and over again. So I do it on my own so I can work at my own pace. I'm, um, I t- I'm very hard working and I take it terribly seriously. And it's the only way to do it, I think, is just mm. to sort of, and I love it. It's so much fun. Um, but I can't, angst about other things while I'm focusing on choreography. Yeah. Can't do it. And that's, that's, so that's, that's a great, a great thing for me to do. And that, that reminds me of improv. When I, when I'm allowed out again, I might go back and do some improv. I sort of got beyond improv a bit. Um, I just did, I just did it too much. And I was just like, I got to hit a certain point where I was like, this isn't dignified. I don't want to pretend to be a dog or a 12 year old boy. Honestly, I don't, you know, if the improv, I mean, some of my friends have just gone on and doing it and doing it and doing it. You know, the comedy store players are all some of them yeah. in their seventies, I think. Yeah. And, um, if the, if you're not, if you're in the sixties and you're not in your seventies, comedy store players, I'm, some of them aren't, some of them I'm sure are in their fifties, but some of them are, you know, pushing it now. And, uh, they're, they're still doing it. And listen, great, for them, I'm super psyched that people want to keep doing it, and I think people should keep doing it. But I just got to a certain point where I went, "This is undignified. I don't want to do this anymore." <laughs> I don't. I think it was somebody said, "Oh, here comes Fifi, our French maid. Now she knows a song about bananas." And I thought, "I don't, you know, I don't know a song about bananas. I don't." 
I don't want to be a French person. Fuck off. I asked her once. And that's the point where you've got to stop for a while. Yeah. Um, I like directing improv, live improv now, but um, I'm very good at teaching improv. Like very, very, very good at teaching improv. Like understanding, deconstructing it and understanding it and being able to put people into a good state. So, and see, deconstruct where their fears are, what, what they're avoiding. Mm. Um, some people are... Some people keep coming up with piling more ideas on because they're frightened of being boring. And then the audience can't understand it. It's like a, you know, uh, it's without a bit David used... David Lynch. Yeah, sorry. Uh, and some people used... are too scared to put an idea out at all in case yeah, it's the wrong yeah. one. And so yeah. it's sort of understanding that. Sorry, without giving, you know, getting you to give us a sort of improv 101, what would be a, like an in for like starting off if you were get, wanting to get into improv? What would be a, a good first sort of lesson? Um, well, most people at the first lesson um, uh, are taught yes and. So the way I would teach that is say you and your partner, you're going to go into a pair and you're going to uh, pretend you're planning a picnic and uh, you're going to say no to each other's ideas. You know, really like, but don't just say no to them. Don't just be a bit like, eh. like kill every idea. So if one of you says, oh, we should bring some bread, the other one will go, you know that I'm gluten-free. You know even a whiff of bread can kill me. Why would you do that? Why would you do it? Like really kill their idea. Hey, okay, well, I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to bring some beer. You you know I'm doing dry January. You know I'm doing, you know, and why would you? It's February. No, it's not. You know, so to really kill each other's ideas. And then the next round of that is just to be, accept their idea but just not be very happy about it to sort of be like should we bring some bread yeah i won't have any i don't know i find it bloats me you know well you know i'm gluten-free but you know someone might yeah no like you know if you want you know shall i bring some beer yeah i won't have any i'm driving but i i, I mean sure i mean it, it tends to go a bit warm doesn't it beer at a picnic but that's fine if that's what you want so just be mildly pissed off but don't but accept <laughs> the idea far funnier as well actually <laughs> well it's sort of it's more british um yeah and then Definitely. the third one is to accept each other's ideas with enthusiasm. So, you know, shall we bring bread? Yes. Uh, of course. Let's make some sandwiches. I'll bring, I'll bring the cheese, the posh cheddar you love. Oh, my God, the posh cheddar I love. I, can't, I didn't think you could get that cheddar anymore. I found it, baby. I found it for you. Well, I've just made some of my homemade chutney. Are you even serious right now? And suddenly you find you're building together one thing you know we're, you know you now you've got a kind of cheese and chutney sandwich as opposed to lots of different things that the other person hates and people tend to enjoy playing the the no one and the yes <laughs> one nobody enjoys the yeah, yeah. Eh, but it is the way people in operate in britain and especially in business britain all the time um i was thinking about our away day we could go we could uh, go back to that venue in uh, in reading because we thought yeah, I mean, we did that last time, but yeah, I mean, let's look into it. Uh, I don't even know if we've got really the budget to go away this year, but we could look at it. We could definitely look at it. I mean, you know, people don't tend to go, no, I don't want to go to Reading again. God, kill me. Kill me before we go to Reading again. Can't we go to Scotland? Oh, God, let's go to a castle in Scotland. People don't do that. They go, hmm, hmm. And so improv works much better if you're yes-anding and then occasionally reacting very strongly uh, to the same, the same uh, 
uh, it's the same principle as any comedy you love, really. If you're watching Friends, they love each other. They're very enthusiastic. Baywatch! Baywatch! Yes, baby! <laughs> and then it's, you're sitting in my chair. Get out of my chair. It's not, oh, fine then. It's yeah. like, <laughs> you, you left the chair area. Uh, it's, you know, I'm going to get in all your clothes and lunge in them. You know, it's big reactions to small things comedy. And, uh, and a lot of improvisers spend their whole time just being mildly negative, uh, so that's what I would teach people is to be very, very positive. And then if you're going to be negative, have a big reaction. That mildly negative thing, like I would say the phrase could do is the most British phrase ever. I've got a friend that every time I suggest doing anything, it's always, yeah, could do. Yeah. Said, no, and it doesn't make no. you feel good. Just say no. no. Exactly. Yeah. No makes you feel better than, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> interesting it, yeah yeah it, because it because it trusts that you you're trusting your partner that they can take a no yeah, exactly. and they can come back with something else mm. or you or you bring something if you don't want that what do you want you know um um so you, you don't tend to really te- need to teach people to say no at first they want to say no to everything to stay safe mm. um so yeah that's what i would teach people at first is how to build on their partner's ideas and really build on them, not just sort of not really listen and go, yes, Um, because people do at first, they'll go, they hear yes and, and they go, let's go to Paris. Yes and, let's go up the Eiffel Tower. Yes and, let's go shopping. Yes and, let's go to Germany. It's like, we've said yes and, but those ideas don't connect. Mm. You've Paris and the Eiffel Tower do, but then shopping, what's that got to do with the Eiffel Tower? You've not yes anding on the Eiffel Tower, yes anding France or Paris. And yes and, let's go to Germany isn't yes and at all. But a lot of, experienced improvisers even will play it that way or teach it that way just like just shout yes and and smile at your partner and that's good enough and i'm like they don't feel listened to yeah you're just saying yes and anything that's not really yes anding somebody uh and in life that's the case as well often people will just wait till you're, you stop talking so true we all want to be listened to i think and a lot of people don't although by the way your version of the yes picnic is exactly how picnics are going to be post lockdown people literally are going to be yeah let's go for a picnic yes get me That's cheese true. i love cheese it's exactly what That's they're true. going to be like once we can all get out and see each other um but i think you're right about being listened to i think that's i mean especially like performers but i think anyone all we want to be we want to be listened to and understood and noticed and acknowledged yeah and i think a lot of the time we just don't do that Giles, we have uh, something exciting to announce here in the middle of the podcast, um, and that is that we are launching blank merchandise. It's official. No way. Proper, (laughs) proper merchandise. Proper merchandise. So if our listeners would like to buy blank merchandise, they can go to podcastmerch.co.uk forward slash blank, and you can get, well, you can get a range of things, can't you? You can get t-shirts, hoodies, mugs. What else? Baby grows? Baby grows, because I'm sure... You know, there's a lot of babies out there that love the Blank Podcast. Um, I know mine does. Um, and you can also get... The, we've got various um, designs, haven't we? We've got one that's got our Blank logo on, uh, and then mm-hmm. we've got two that are inspired by pod guests. Yeah, one of them was inspired by Rebecca Callard, who was on, I think, the eighth episode of the Blank Pod. Mm. And hers was to do with her video collection, which we were 
talked about at some length and we thought that what video library which was the video shop i worked in back in the 90s was an excellent name for a romantic <laughs> band of the 1980s <laughs> yeah and then you made this uh this great uh what looks like album cover of you and me with um hair from flock of seagulls um so we mm-hmm. thought you know what let's make that into a design so you can get that on t-shirts and hoodies and, and sweatshirts and then we've got one that's inspired by sanjeev baskar when he talked about the three different stages of blank fearful blank neutral blank and happy blank and we've turned that into a design as well so um we've got various uh, designs that people can can get um and in different colors as well I'm, I'm very excited by this charles i'm really excited it feels like we're a proper thing now it does indeed um so if our listeners would would like to buy some merch um the t-shirts for example are 18 quid um the hoodies are 27 quid uh the tote bags are 17 quid and mugs are 15 quid and of course we do get a small cut as well of of everything that's sold so if you'd like to support the pod um then you can do it in this way and you'll get yourself some exclusive blank merchandise so go to podcastmerch.co.uk forward slash blank so you obviously you went to oxford you got in how was that experience? Did you, was it, obviously you'd come from Australia, you, you, you got out of obviously the situation you had over there. Was that, was it a freeing experience? Did you start to, I was going to, we were talking about like the, the roaring twenties. Did you sort of embrace that, that, that amount of freedom? It took me a while. I think I felt constantly felt that everyone around me was going to be so much better. Cause I, and I was a bit of a, an imposter. Um, I remember the first year there was a playwriting competition and I thought, well, these people, a lot of them had come from very posh public schools and I just escaped a cult and didn't want to tell anyone that. And so I thought their plays are going to be amazing. This is, I'm, I'm here with Oscar Wilde and George Bernard Shaw. Why would I submit one? Mm. And then I saw some of the plays that got chosen because it was a festival. It was called the Cameron McIntosh New Writing Festival. And... Um, the, the prize for the top five plays was they would be put on, produced. And then one, the, the, the big winner was put on at the Oxford Playhouse, but the others were put on at, you know, or the fire station or somewhere. Um, and the others were put on at, you know, other theatres around Oxford. And they got workshopped at RADA and stuff. And when I went to see a couple of them, I was like, oh, I can, well, I can write a play better than this. Um, and the next year I the deadline loomed. I suddenly went, oh, my God, it's this playwriting thing again. I knew you're only there for three years. So I remember staying up all night to write this play. I wrote the play in 24 hours, ran in, handed it in, ran home by the deadline, ran home and went to sleep. And then mine was one of the ones chosen. And I was like, oh, it's not, you, it's, you know, you bring other things if you've been in a cult. <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah. You bring other things. Um. And I think I stopped worrying so much while I was there. They also, I remember in the first year, the tutor who I'd blagged my way in with, I remember having a tutorial with him and I made a point. I read my essay out as you had to. It was just this one-on-one thing. Um, Very privileged. God, I think about the tutorials I missed and, you know, the privilege I didn't realise I had, I'm sure. Uh, But I remember reading this essay out and then him taking me on and just debating as they did. And I came back with something and he said, why didn't you say that in your essay? That is an excellent point. 
And I said, well, none of the critics had said it, so I wasn't sure it was right. And I remember him saying, you are an Oxford scholar. Your opinion is as important as any opinion in the world. And I thought, hey, this is why people come out of Oxford and Cambridge like they do. (laughs) It's that's drummed into you for three years. And the ones that were there who'd been in school uniform the year before, you know, who were so arrogant. These people were so arrogant, some of them. And they'd just been to these schools where that had been drilled into them since Mm. they were eight. Your opinion is as important as anyone's in the world. You know, so they, you know, and and I realised when I came out, I remember going to the House of Commons for something and thinking, oh, yeah, this is like my JCR, my Tudor Common Room. You know, like you, you spend three years abusing the furniture in <laughs> astoundingly beautiful buildings, jumping out of windows, climbing up, you know, the side of things, putting on plays in the quad, you know, getting drunk and stand, dancing on the tables. So it's hard to be intimidated mm. by buildings anymore. That's that's a thing that happens when you leave Oxford. Um, and there's a sort of, I mean, when I came out writing TV scripts, um, it wasn't enough to be an Oxford graduate. You had to be a male one. Mm-hmm. And so the men in my year that were submitting scripts, uh, there were, I mean, I'm sure there were some that didn't get away, but there were some that absolutely did. And even though some of those shows didn't, you know, do much business or weren't very well received, they kept getting more opportunities. And I kept getting told that my scripts that I was writing with my female writing partner were phenomenal and this one's going to go. And, you know, I remember going into a building and people coming across the room and going, are you the ones that wrote MILF? Oh, my God, we were so gutted we didn't get that. And scripts that again and again we were told this one's going to go. It's up on the board now. It's going to go. It's going to go. And at the end of the day, in that period, they just didn't – they did. They weren't giving shows to women. They just weren't. They couldn't. They couldn't bite the bullet and do it. They couldn't bite the bullet and do it. Um, and even now, honestly, the stats are very, 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 very bad. Um, if you build a big profile and then you write a show about your own life, then as a woman, you that's that's your opportunity to get a show. But you have to already have a profile, and you have to have you have to be writing about your own experience. There's, it's very difficult to think of exceptions outside of that. There are some, but it's usually women being trusted to adapt novels. But it's it's the stats are very bad. It's mad because when you were talking about the cult and back home, and now you're talking about the opportunities that female writers get. I mean, it's not it's not, it's not too dissimilar, really. No, nope, like I was very up. surprised. I was always a feminist as a Jehovah's Witness, which you were not allowed to be, <laughs> but uh, I secretly was, and occasionally I would say things to some people who would be like, "You can't say that. You can't think that." But honestly, when I came out, I was very disappointed that the real world was not much better. Yeah. In that way. It's so, uh, so disheartening. I should imagine when you were, you know, when you're trying to get work, work out there, and um, I mean, we talked earlier about being a survivor, and although you shouldn't have to be a survivor, obviously it's instilled in you some of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, I'm much more privileged than many human beings. Let's be incredibly honest. Uh, uh, you know, I've got my trauma, and I've got my privilege, and you know, uh, I but I just built my own thing because I f- could see that the industry were not. I'm a little bit more so now. A little bit more. It's it 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 is it is getting better. 
uh, slowly, glacially slowly, it is getting better. But in the meantime, I went and built my own thing with The Guilty Feminist. I just, I built my own platform for female comedy in this country. And as it turns out, because of the way podcasts work globally, um, because the industry kept saying there's no room for women in comedy. We've already got a female driven project. Uh, the audience don't want female comedians. Like I've, I have explicit emails saying that I've explicit emails saying, Whoa. uh, we are, I had my own series on radio four and I didn't have an agent to rep the deal. So I was like, well, they're all going to come to the live show now. Cause at least, I, you know, I've got my own radio four series with my name in the title, which only happens to half a dozen people a year. Mm. So I was like, well, at least they'll come and look at the show. And, you know, an agent should not take you on unless they feel you, you know, unless they feel your material. But um, I thought, well, they'll come and have a look, you know, now. And uh, I, I got an email back saying, I cannot consider anyone of the female persuasion. That might sound sexist, but it's not. It's not me that's sexist, it's the industry. And I wrote back and said, but you're a woman who's an agent and I'm a woman who's a comic. We are the industry. Who is this industry? If we're not going to change it, who's going to change it? Um, and... Another person at that time who wrote back and said, we're a bit saturated girl-wise at the moment. I mean, it was explicit misogyny. It was explicit yeah. sexism. And not that those women who wrote to me hated women. I don't mean it in that way. But they could. They felt that the industry wouldn't accept any more women. And they had a couple of women on their books, maybe even more than a couple. And they were like, we're not, we're not getting those women work. Why are we giving, why are we taking on more women? And I was just like, no, I don't believe this. There's an audience, there's an audience, there's an audience. Mm -hmm. And when I went to do the podcast, honestly, I just thought, well, even if I find a small, dedicated audience who wants it, I don't really care. Like if there's 100 people listening to this every week, that's 100 people that I'm connecting with. And, you know, in five years, we've had 85 million downloads. Because women wow. are thirsty. They're thirsty. Uh, but I'm very lucky. I'm very, very lucky. And in, you know, in the good times, in the non-pandemic times when I can tour, um, you know, I have this thriving, growing, activated, changing audience who's going with me on a, on a discovery and, 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 you know, in a, in a way that where where we can grow and develop together as, as well as be in this funny, joyful, entertaining space. Um, so yeah, I'm very lucky. But yeah, I mean, you've also helped change the landscape. You know, you you've been a driving force behind that. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I I have taken great pleasure in that, and and that's a great achievement. I feel like in my life that I that that when I kept getting these emails saying people like you aren't wanted, I just thought, well, every other women are getting these as well. You know, and. And it was much harder. At that time, I was mentoring a young woman who was a, um, an Asian-British stand-up comic who was Muslim and wore a headscarf and did material about wearing a headscarf. And I, I remember arguing till I cried with a couple of white men who were comics at the Adelaide Fringe Festival that it was not harder. For, they were saying it's not any harder for her. One of them said, well, I'm a, I'm a character comedian. It's just as hard for me. And I was like... It isn't. Yeah. It isn't. You look like what people think a comedian looks like. You can walk into a club and get yourself a gig. You can choose not to do characters if you want. You can choose to go and do some stand-up. 
she is getting rejected consistently. I mean, and now, obviously, again, it's a different landscape because there's more appetite for diversity. But this was 2011, and there was not an appetite for diversity, let me guarantee you. Mm-hmm. There was not. The rejection she got, even just to do, like, an open spot, they were just like, uh, what's this here with this situation? She just didn't look like what... It was just Islamophobia and it was just misogyny and racism. That's what it was. It was a big old bunch of those three things. And it was obviously harder for her than me. I could just see it. And I was trying to get her gigs and, you know, all the gigs she was getting was, you know, other women of colour saying, who were more successful saying she could, but there weren't very many at that time either because they were having the same problem. But, um, you know, Shazia Mirza said... um, that she could support her and, you know, it, she was very generous and open. But, but you know, there were opportunities like that, but it wasn't it, it wasn't the normal <laughs> opportunities and that any comic could get. And, you know, I could see that. And I remember arguing with these guys and they just were like, they just couldn't see it. They just couldn't, they genuinely didn't believe it. And they were like really like looking at me like I was asking for special favours and that I was a bit mad and I, you know, I'm still angry about it. But post Me Too, that's helped my mental health a lot because I read something recently that said a lot of trauma is lack of a credible witness. And at the time, I was all, when I talked about women in comedy or women in show business or, um, you know, my experiences connecting with women of colour in show business uh, uh, and how much harder it was for them than for me, uh, uh, you know, honestly, it was like I was... I was the crazy one. Like I was the one that was just completely delusional. And now I don't get that anymore. Now, now that's accepted. Now it's accepted. What happened happened. You know, I used to have to negotiate. I remember it really well, you know, like going to a meeting with a male TV producer and you have to make him feel like at the Groucho Club or something. And you'd have to make him feel attractive, not reject him in any way, but also get out of there without doing anything you didn't want to do. But the game was leave him feeling sexier than when he met you so that he didn't say you're never going to eat lunch in this town again. So he didn't slag you off. So he wanted to work with you. So he wouldn't say bad things about you. And we, we know what happened now, you know, Harvey Weinstein killed women's careers. We know that, you know, um, Peter Jackson came out and went, Oh yeah, I didn't hire this actress who I had, who I was going to, um, have as one of the leads in Lord of the Rings because he just said, don't work with her. She will hold your set up. She won't come out of her trailer. She's going to ruin your movie. And he was just like, oh, I really like her as an actress, but I can't have that. You know, it's, I need to be able to move. I need to be able to, uh, okay, if that's going to be a nightmare, I'd rather hire someone else. And he came out about it. He he said, look, this is the reason. Specifically, I didn't hire this actress because of Weinstein. So we know there will be loads of other directors who are not going to say that, who are mm-hmm. going to be like, shit, okay, maybe don't tell that story. But he was like, no, I got completely duped by Weinstein. I thought, well, he's Harvey Weinstein. Like, he's not, you know, I didn't know. Um, so he directly killed women's careers. And that was so easy to do because there were so few opportunities for us anyway. You don't want that guy feeling humiliated by you and therefore saying bad stuff about you and or you know saying I don't want her on this panel show or whatever so you did what you did what you had to do um and that for me was always the dance of can you leave them feeling flattered but not 
you know, and I mean, not, not that that happened to me a lot. You know, I wasn't the kind of, I, I think there were women who were, came in for a lot more of that treatment than I did. Um, just because I didn't, you know, I'm tall and broad and I just don't, I don't look, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't have the kind of looks I think that those men often went for. Um, but so I don't think it happened to me. It, it wasn't a, it wasn't a daily thing for some women. That's a, that's a, that was a daily negotiation and navigation. And I certainly have you know, quite a bit of experience of it. And I think that, um, uh, that, that was just, it was just accepted. You had to make men feel good. You had to make men feel good. And if you were being bullied, um, as happened to me, there was just no recourse. It was just like, you're, you're going to be seen as difficult to work with. So you just got to push through this. And that, that man's the bigger box office. So you don't have the profile. So what are you going to do? And of course you don't have the profile because you're not invited on any of the shows that would give you the profile. Mm. Um, so you just had to put up with it or get out of the game. And I was just never quite ready to get out of the game. It's a complete abuse of power. And the thing that make, makes me feel so crazy is that it's not, not, it's so recent. I think we think as a society, oh, it's we really think, oh, recent. we've come mm. so far. We're really, you mm. know, we're really progressive, we're really diverse. And a few years ago that, yeah. that Me Too happened. Exactly. And it's it's just, a few years ago. It was up until that point... If you're working with a man who was treating you badly, either bullying you or uh, demoralising you or um, sexualising you in ways that made you feel very uncomfortable, you had to push through or get out of the business. Yeah. Like there was no other, there, were, there weren't other options then. There weren't. I remember women talking about it. We were like, oh, well, you have to, this is how you have to work this situation or or you walk off to your own cost. You know, you you if you want to participate in the social capital or, you know, it, in spaces where you can build your profile. And that's, I think that that's why the success of the guilty feminist surprised me massively. But, uh, but at the same time, it kind of didn't because I knew women were thirsty and, uh, and I was able to build a space that was, uh, um, was just, celebrating women and uh, where when they came on stage, the audience would be like, yeah, we're so excited to see Susan McComber or Jessica Foster Q or Alison Spittle or Sindhu V. And it it was just a a kind of joyful place where you didn't have to navigate all of that. Um, And I could kind of withdraw from the, withdraw from all of that shit. Um, But, you know, women cannot, you know, I, we've only got so many slots. I can't have every woman every time. And I can't, you know, some women I'm sure I've never had on. And, you know, it's, it's only one little show, you know, it's only one little show. It, it, it's, it's a much bigger show than it was, but it, it, there needs to be more stuff like that being built by the industry. And there is, there's more stuff bit like that being built by women and, there's more spaces, you know, like Kima Bob's Fuck It Up, which is uh, Femmes of Colour Comedy Club. And, and uh, you know, there there are, of course, uh, spaces all the time being built and other brilliant things like the Guilty Feminist being built all over the shop. And uh, it's just one in, an, in, an, in a massive growing network of, of brilliant new things. But I wish the industry would trust women more. I wish they would just 
honestly, do you know what I'd like to see? Uh, um, the shows that I saw in Edinburgh in the last few years that were just blew me away were in, like Lolly de Fope's show. She's undeniably a throbbing talent. Mm-hmm. Like her writing, her performing, her complete, she's completely held and knows herself on stage. She communicates things absolutely brilliantly to her audience. And she's just very, very good. She's a very, very good and very, very, very funny. And Emma Siddy as well. I mean, those women, like Emma Siddy's characters are just ridiculously good. She is a joyful, quality human being. You know, both of those women. If I were a commissioning editor, I would just go, well, that show was brilliant. That show was brilliant. Here's a budget. Go away with a really good production company that you have a connection with. Come back to us with a show that you would like to see, that you'd like to watch, that you want to make the heart of hearts, what do you want to watch and be in? You know, what about giving that to the two of them and Rose Matafeo? What would the three of those women come up with together? It would be genius. Mm. And even if it, even if it wasn't, it, it would be, it, it would, what does it matter? It's their first show and they will get to learn and explore and grow like men have for, you know, generations in this country. You know, the first season of Blackadder is famously not very good. They didn't, they kind of worked mm. out, oh, that doesn't <laughs> yeah, work. Yeah. I remember one of the things they were saying was they realised that Rowan Atkinson falling off a horse in a wide shot was no funnier than anyone else falling off a horse. And they mm. realised they needed to do close-ups. But that's because they got a second season. So why why not say you get two seasons? So if you make mistakes the first season, it doesn't have to be perfect. Just have a fun play, see what works, see what doesn't. And then season two, you'll be able to find a shape for it. If I were a commissioning editor, that's what I'd do. I would go to those three young, burgeoning talents who are all friends with each other and go, you've got a connection. You're brilliant. You know, I'm sure there's other there's other brilliant people I'm not mm. thinking of right now. You know, there's massive dad. There's, you know, there's so many brilliant women out there, birthday girls, people like that, who were just fantastic. And... I would be, I would honestly say, let, trust the creatives. I remember a um, brilliant producer called John Rolfe, who was uh, ran BBC Comedy for a long time, and he said to me, look, we've never known. He said, you know, you look back on these golden ages of comedy, there were so many duff shows we don't remember. Yeah. And he was like, but it was an environment where happy accidents could happen because we'd give money to people and say, play, experiment, try, and that's where you get the happy accident and the gem of, you know, not the nine o'clock news. They did exactly that, said, you're all funny people. Take this money away. Come back with a show that you want to do. And that's how you get nine, not the nine o'clock news. You let them, let the creatives be creative with a great producer. And, but he said, you know, we gave money to other people and, you know, it wasn't funny. It didn't work. But that's fine. But that's, you, st- you can't get nine o'clock, not the nine o'clock news unless you let three or four different combinations of people. I remember Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry saying, um, talking about an early show they were in, it was a sketch show, and they said, it, it, they were they joking, it failed to penetrate the market. Um, and But that wasn't the only shot they got. Yeah. You know, if yeah. you look at, um, like, Pappies, uh, who are just genius, those guys, they made one season, and then it was like, oh, we're not sure that quite worked no more. I'm like, no, yeah. that's the wrong. That's ex- they're exactly the people you should give a second season to because they've learnt from their first season. Now I bet their second season is going to be amazing because they got to watch their first season, um, and they do it all the time, you know. And I, 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 I just, I, I really find it hard to understand 
um, uh, I mean, I know that like when I was, you know, I'm still, you know, hopefully going to get some TV away in the next year or two, but you know, and I've, all the signs are pointing to that I will. Uh, but in that f- desert period where I couldn't get anything away because women just couldn't. And the amount of times I was told, the number of times I was told, this one's going to go, this is a really fantastic script. And we really believed it every time because we knew this, we knew we had a cut, we had two scripts that were exceptional. We had some scripts that were right. Some, probably some scripts that were bad. Uh, We had some scripts that were pretty good, but we had two that were exceptional um, that people still talk about. And that could have been our peep show and our fresh meat. And now I'd be making my succession, but we didn't get to we didn't get to make those because ultimately they weren't trusting women. But now there is an appetite for diversity. I genuinely don't understand why they are not going to Emma and Rose and Lolly and going. Here's a budget. What do you want to make? What would you make with this budget? Work with the production company of your dreams, with a producer that speaks to you. Come back with something contemporary. You know, all of those women are what in their twenties, early thirties, mm. just come back with something that makes you laugh that makes you that's that's your truth i don't i don't understand i don't understand it but there are other people as well like i think like michael spicer what genius that man is yeah. it's such a simple idea what a yeah. cheap yeah. show that would be for them to make yeah i know yeah. you know that if you, the if you yeah if you don't know it if you're listening and you don't know it it's a it's a he does a sketch called the room next door which you can find if you go on any of the socials, um, you've probably seen it. Um, it it's uh, where he uh, cuts between an, a speech being given incompetently by a politician that's con- that's currently in the news and himself as if he's in the room next door speaking to them and into their into their inner earpiece mm-hmm. um, and uh, starts berating them or escalating in his frustration as they keep on uh, saying the wrong thing or. Um, uh, the, the interview spirals out of control. It's such a cheap show to make. Why have they not just gone? They they don't. Uh, what I think what they don't understand is the way that the internet works at speed. Mm. Yeah. The internet works at great speed now. Something goes viral. They they'll put something into development for two years. Mm. They need to go. Michael Spice is hot now. Here's the budget, Michael. What can you make? We need six episodes, and we want to start putting them out. You know, as soon as you've get them back to us. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, same as, um, same as uh, Will Hislop with the, your aunt at the NHS clap. Yes. Yeah. You know, there are some things that have really gone viral. Were you thinking of, um, you were, was it Sarah Cooper you were thinking of? Uh, yes. Yeah. Sarah, Sarah Cooper. Cooper. Yeah. Trump, she's amazing Trump as well. Monologues. Yeah. 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 And yeah. It's Sarah Cooper Thank does you. the Trump monologues. Kieran Hodgson, who's doing the sort of, you know, the, the spoofs of, uh, you know the um, uh, all the the popular TV shows where he impersonates all the popular TV shows. I mean, if you just threw some money at some people who are making viral content mm. and said the four of you, each of you, do your thing, mm. uh, but on a bigger budget, that TV show would in itself become a massive hit. Obviously, but it's just I, I think it's it's. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I would, I just, I just think, especially the female talent that I've seen in Edinburgh in the last few years has been absolutely outstanding, and I would like to see commissioners do what they say that they want to do, which is to, um, in this country, 
because we're losing so much talent to America now. Yeah. Bisha Kayali um, yeah. has now is now showrun Miss Marvel. Um, Sarah Salamani's gone to America. Um, London, London Hughes. Hughes has gone to America, yeah. and you know London Hughes went to America. Said I'm giving myself five years, and within eight months she had a a, a chat show, a, a television, a stand up special, a yeah. movie, a sitcom. You know, um, there is a young black talented British woman who is who we've lost. You know, we say yeah. we want diversity in this country. We've lost her. She's not coming back here now to make a to make a sitcom on a, a tenth of the budget. Of course, she's not. Why would she? We could have had her, nurtured her here, and then she could have gone mm. to America to make some big money later. But we could have built that talent and also then she would be loyal and come back and do co-pros and things like that. You know, it's – she feels very – you know, she's been very open about how angry she feels that Britain didn't want her. Yeah, also, rightly so. I mean, like yeah. you say, she's an incredible talent and has been – has you know, had to find her wares elsewhere. Yeah. Jeannie Yashiray, Andy yeah. Osho, they've all gone to America. Well, yeah. I, don't, I can't blame them. no. No, where could, I mean, I'm trying to think where we, where it can be, cha- I mean, obviously, like, there's a, obviously, maybe there's a problem with the commissioning system in, in, in the big corporate, you know, particularly the BBC and then other corporations, you know, are there other things that can be, I don't know, how can we, how can we change it? How can it be changed? Um, I, it, it will be changed when, when there is pressure to change it. But I feel like there's a zeitgeist. I feel like it's going to happen. Yeah, and are you, you're talking about the sort of online talent as well. Obviously, I'm not a TV commissioner, and but surely there's already an audience for that. If that stuff's getting big online and people are enjoying it, well, it seems would it make almost, sense that there's already an audience then? That then if you well, it's funny, isn't it? Because you think about show, risk aversion. I know a lot of industries are worried about you know like it's always kind of risk aversion, what's going to sell, what's going to do well. But like you say, if you've got a ready-made audience that's already, you know, I mean, I love all those things that you've talked about and I would be, you know, be very happy to turn on iPlayer and watch a half-hour show of, you know, relatively similar kind of material. So, yeah, like you say, that, that seems almost against the risk aversion sort of thing, argument. But well, when know. things go viral, you need to be fast. Yeah. So uh, what I would be doing if I was a commissioner is being much faster. I'd go, okay, this Michael Spicer guy, if he's done this a few times now and people are loving that content, I'd go now, go in. But I would also then look for who – there are other parts of Twitter you're not on uh, where diverse talent is – is – blossoming and burgeoning and uh, so i wouldn't just go necessarily you know just this one guy i'd go i'd do the not i'd do not the nine o'clock news and i'd go you know put these brilliant creative people together um and then you have variety and you have diversity and you have the you have the um you have the ingredients where a happy accident can happen. That doesn't mean that show's going to be a hit, mm. and that's okay. Mm. You know, it's the John Rolfe thing of no happy accidents can happen. Mm. If we hover over everything and five producers keep telling the talent, this isn't, no, it needs to be safer, it needs to be more like this, it needs to be more like I want it to be, no happy accidents accidents can happen in that environment. 
So we need to allow things to be season one of Blackadder so that they can be season two of Blackadder. Yeah. Are you, are you feeling confident about sort of the way things are going in terms of opportunities for diverse entertainment and, and comedy and think everything heading in the right direction? Obviously, and obviously, you know, like we said, no, you're not. No. No. People you keep were supposed saying... to say, um, <laughs> I, I'm no. not sure, but yeah, it could, could, could be. <laughs> no, people keep saying, now you have to be a black lesbian to get anything. Uh, Terry Gilliam said that. And Lolly Adifope tweeted, name your top five black lesbians working in comedy today, which was a great response. <laughs> if you look at the numbers, if you look at the numbers of who's actually commissioned, you will find that that is not true. Yeah. That if 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 a woman if a woman wants to get her own show, then she is going to have to build a profile elsewhere, build a big audience for herself first. And even then it's going to be very difficult. And even then there'll be only very few things she'll be trusted to write about. Usually some experience she's lived. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a, a black woman. Look, I'm not saying, uh, uh, I'm saying London Hughes went to America. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying Catherine Ryan had an enormous profile that she built doing other things before she got the Duchess. Mm-hmm. Same with Ashley B, same with May Martin, same with Sarah Pascoe. They built, they worked their socks off mm. to get to a place where they'd be trusted with a scripted half hour. And that's not, that's not what I see. That's not what I see from white men, you know, and, and, you know, I would say black and brown men have, you know, equally a very, very diminished chance, a very diminished opportunity. It, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that. The numbers will tell you that. Go and look yeah. at them. Yeah. The numbers will. T- the numbers. The numbers don't lie. It, black lesbians might be getting on diversity schemes and getting put into development, but I, where are their shows? Where are their shows? This this idea that this idea that you have to be a black lesbian to get anything, which I hear a lot. It's like a, it's like a turn of phrase now, and it's like, well, I I I it it is. Please please point me to those shows because I would love to watch them. It is it is mad that we're in. I was about to say twenty 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 one. Um, that we're still those are still the figures, and we're still talking. Uh huh. Like that. It's yeah. I mean, I I got sent a thing the other day saying eleven percent of comedy is uh, is is uh, from women. That seems low. That's ridiculous. Eleven. But um, I mean, on some channels, I'm sure that is definitely true. Um, Channel Four is definitely better for comedy. Um, uh, Fiona does commission a lot from women. I mean, it's 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 not fifty fifty anywhere. Um, but I know Channel 4 is the best in this country. And Fiona's made a big big leap in the right direction. And and lo and behold, look at all her hits. Dairy Girls, yeah. um, Chewing Gum, um, a Feel Good. I mean, it's not, it's not a risk. It's only a perceived risk. Mm. It's only a perceived risk. And Chewing Gum has then uh, wrought I May Destroy You. So, you know, like... Yeah. Is it is it is it a is it a risk? Is it a risk? It it feels like it's not it's not 
Derry Girls is not riskier than plebs. It isn't. Agreed. It just isn't. They're they're wrong. They're wrong when they say it's a risk. But that is what they think. They look at it and they go, it's from the house of a woman, it's a risk. It's not. It's it's less of a risk because women are thirsty. Yeah. So we'll find our feel goods. We will find our we'll find our chewing gums. We'll find our our duchesses. We'll go and we'll go and seek them out. Yeah. We'll find our shrills. You know, we'll we'll go and seek them out. I mean, is this just an uh, indicative of um, bro- British broadcasters? It, are we seeing more opportunities in the streaming services and things like that? As is there are more, you know, obviously that we've talked, we've alluded it, to in America, America, America yeah, being better. in America. But I, I bet the stats are similar in America. It's just there's a lot more opportunity in America because, mm. uh, you know, twenty percent of a lot means there's yeah. more open doors for women. Mm. 20% of a small, you know, of a, you know, 11 to 20% of a small, a smaller um, uh, number of possible slots is very few. Jim, it's us again. And uh, we've got some big news. We have indeed. Uh, Giles. I can't believe I'm saying this. We've written a book, a book about blank moments based on this very podcast. Yeah, we've been recording this podcast for a while now. And as we've been doing, we've realised that everyone has these difficult blank moments. All our wonderful guests that we have on the podcast and our listeners get in touch with us all the time to tell us about their own situations, their own experiences of blank moments. And sometimes that can be from a personal life, from their career, the relationships they're in. Or maybe it's a public situation. Yeah, I mean, it really, it's one of those terms that can be applied to anything. Social anxiety, imposter syndrome, just sort of generally being off form, having an identity crisis. I mean, it's all part of the human condition. And yet we all get thrown off from time to time and sort of made to feel a bit helpless. Yeah, so the book is made up of all these different chapters that sort of concentrate on these various themes that come up in the pod. So whether it's uh, public failure, social anxiety, fear, mental health, grief all the things that our amazing guests have talked about on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, and those guests include Louis Theroux, David Harbour, Reg D. Hunter, Dawn French, Rachel Paris, Amanda Abington, John Ronson, Rufus Sewell, Gary Lineker, all these people that really opened up to us about these difficult moments. And what we've done is we've dived into them, um, explained how we relate to them, talked a little bit about our own experiences and almost gone on a journey of this discovering blank moments and how they've helped us. And we hopefully we take the reader on a journey with us. Yeah, there's loads of stuff in there for everybody, I think. It's a bit memoir, it's a bit self-help, and there's lots of interactive bits in there as well, so you can do your own gratitude list, and there's tips on uh, if you're having sleeping problems. So all different things that you can take out of the book. And where can people get hold of this book, Jim? Well, so it comes out in March in 2021, but it's available to pre-order right now from Amazon, waterstones.com, and hive.co.uk. Yeah, it's, I'm really looking forward to everyone getting their hands on it. And uh, hopefully lots of people will be able to identify their own blank moments. And you never know what you might find out. Uh, Deborah, can I just go back to what you were saying earlier about um, the sort of space to get things wrong and the space to 
improve. We talk about creativity a lot on this podcast in sort of various forms, and that often comes up a lot. That like people are too scared to do anything or make anything because they're worried it'll be bad. But being bad is part of the process, isn't it? You know, getting things wrong and then learning from it. It's all part of the the journey towards whatever you end up doing. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I think you look at old Python. If you go and watch old Python, I mean, some of it's dated because it's, you know, it's sexist and Mm. stuff. Uh, But if you just look at some of the, you know, the absurd sketches of Python, not all of it lands by any means. What what we remember is the half a dozen really brilliant sketches. But it's a long-running show. There's lots of pretty good stuff and there's lots of okay stuff and there's lots of bad stuff in it. But that's that's sketch comedy. Like, you know, it, it, you don't get the dead parrot sketch by saying everything's got to be as good as the yeah. dead parrot sketch <laughs> yeah, because that yeah, yeah. creates great anxiety in people. And then you'll get no dead parrot sketch because it's like, you know, coming in and you know, with three armed gunmen and saying, come up with five great ideas for a sketch right now. It's like, (laughs) what? Like, you know, it's not a great creative environment. So, you know, allowing, you know, and I do mourn, I mourn the, uh, the, you know, somebody said to, somebody said to Shane Allen, who runs BBC Comedy, would you, it was, it was a deliberate clickbait question at a television conference where they wanted a headline clearly, said, would you commission the Pythons today? That's a couple of years ago. And he said, well, probably not because we're looking to reflect, you know, you know, British life and probably, you know, six Oxbridge white guys or whatever. You know, he said something like that. And they they asked the question, hoping for that answer, and then they yeah. went, "Oh, the Pythons wouldn't be commissioned by the yeah. BBC today. It's political correct. It's gone mad." Um, and I would I would be very sad if there was if we lost always look on the bright side of life and the cheese shop sketch, and you know I'd be very sad too if that was just gone tomorrow. Mm. If the dead parrot sketch was gone tomorrow, I'd be really sad. And I'm equally sad that I don't know any of the brilliant funny genius minds that were in our community in the sixties that were in the, in the bodies of female people, black people, black female people, brown people, uh, openly queer people. I mean, Graham Chapman was gay and, you know, but it wasn't a, it wasn't an environment where, gay people could be themselves in the 60s. It wasn't even legal till 67. Um, so what is the what is the lost library of comedy Alexandria from the 1960s black women who were walking down Carnaby Street? There were women who were who were brilliant mimics, who were satirists, who had absolutely laser sharp wit on what the government was doing, who had insights on what it was like to be a a black woman dating in the swinging sixties, a black lesbian dating in the swinging sixties. We will never, ever, ever know those sketches. We've lost all of those cheese shops, all of those dead parrot sketches. We don't have our female goons. We don't have our working class, you know, uh, uh, Pythons, we don't have our, um, you know, who, who 
who, you know, who didn't go to university or, you know, um, some of the Pythons I'm sure would say they were working class. So just, this is just me riffing here, but you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, we've, we've lost, we've lost so much gold mm. and I would really love to think that we weren't going to miss another generation of glorious, insightful comedy and drama because it's perceived to be coming from a mind that is in some way a larger risk to a network or a streaming platform because they don't think there's an audience for it when that is clearly being proved wrong again and again. Absolutely, yes, but yeah, exactly. The internet is proving that obviously there is an audience and yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I was surprised when you said you, you you weren't confident about things going forward, and I I hope that things the numbers do haven't change. moved. That's why. Yeah, I mean, I get that. I mean, if I do something about it, if we do something about it, then I'm more confident. I'm not confident it'll happen on its own because it's not it's not happening on its own. It's, it's not happened on its own. Yeah. How will it happen on its own? Suddenly, it won't. It takes all. It takes all of us. No, it doesn't take all of us. It takes a chunky, motivated minority. That's how everything changes. Nothing changes because all of us wanted to change ever. Things change because a chunky, motivated minority, a, an angry minority, changes the world every time. We have to keep that going. I mean, obviously, you're 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 keeping that going with what you're doing, but it's not obviously all down to you. Um, I'm sure you wouldn't want that entirely on your shoulders. No, but I can only control what I do, so that's why yeah. I say, you know, if I do something about it, is a more motivating thing to say than, yeah, I'm not, I definitely can't change it all on my own, but it, it it's I, I can only control what I do. Yeah. So it makes me feel more hopeful if I think I can do something about. It. Mm. Absolutely. Well, Deborah, it's been fantastic talking to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. Um, Before we go, I'd love to ask you what the go-to tune is for your, when you're doing your dancing. Oh, well, I have a routine to when you're good to mama and uh, I am currently working on something to all that jazz. So it's very Chicago based at the moment. Okay. (laughs) Excellent. So do you have a chair that you have to use? No, it's not Fosse. No, no, no. It's not fussy based. <laughs> no, my dance teacher is very. Uh, she's 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 she creates her own choreography. Um, yeah. Although when I watched Fossey Verdon, I realised that a lot of Fossey was actually Gwen Verdon, who'd been who's very much been written out of the story. Um, that yeah, Fossey choreography is not just Fossey; it's Fossey Verdon. That's why Fossey Verdon was made. Brilliant show. Sam Rockwell is Bob Fossey, um, and. Uh, Michelle, uh, what's Williams? her name? Williams as uh, as Gwen Verdon. Fascinating, and her daughter was their daughter was a consultant on it. Oh, um, I've watched that show. I think she's exected. I think it's her. I think oh, it's okay. her. I think it's her. As I say, consultant. I think she exected mm. and wants that story out there that it wasn't just her dad; it was her mum as well. Um, uh, it's a brilliant show but it, it looks at creativity but it also looks at um, marginalization sexism and mm. and the you know the addictive 
narcissistic nature of creative minds often and performers and you know it's a very interesting show yeah i really enjoyed the the one with sam well and michelle williams i thought it was, mm-hmm. it was fascinating it was great well yeah thank you so much for your time today thanks really, for having just, me just really fascinating insightful talking to you and you know you are podcast royalty um so it's it's lovely to talk to you thank you very much Francis White on the Blank Podcast. Uh, what an inspirational person, and I mean, fascinating insight in, into the industry, and just what a, what an incredibly driven person, you know. Because the, the impression I got, and I I, may, I forgot to say this on the pod, is that everything she's been through with her life and with the industry and, uh, and sort of fighting for opportunities just sounds so tiring. It just sounds like a really sort of draining existence, and yet she, you know, she continues and is not just doing what she does for herself but for you know the hundreds and thousands of diverse comedians who follow in her path and you know making more opportunities for them and hopefully making every, everything more equal as well so just an absolute inspiration really and it was, it was fascinating talking to her and hearing her insight yeah it really was no it really was a real treat to talk to deborah and um to hear more about you know i, I think i you're aware you know you can be slightly aware of these things but it's good to get informed you know and i think i i've you know it's enriched my knowledge of of the industry and and what's going on and you know hopefully you and i um can use our platform to to help as well in some small way i think as well like you um it's only until you have discussions like that with someone like deborah you 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 know we are two you know white males doing a podcast and stuff and i think even with all the best intention in the world, you realise that sometimes you are still more ignorant, I think, really, to the way things work yeah. than you than you think you are. Yeah. Even if you consider yourself, you know, quite a progressive sort of person, mm. you can't, you haven't lived the life in the shoes of other people who, yeah. are, for, for their existence, is incredibly different mm. and are much more difficult. And I think, you, you know, I think sometimes we have to sort of check our privilege and check our ignorance a bit and, you know, and try and understand and, if you are in a position to help as well, then fantastic. You know, not all of us are, but if you are, then that's great. But even if you're not, I think trying to have a bit more understanding about how the way things work. You know, she's talking about those male comedians saying, "Oh, it's just as hard for me being a mm. character comedian, or whatever." I mean, that's that's you know, patently untrue. And I think the only way that changes is when people like that accept it and be like, "Oh, okay, no, I, I can see it's different actually, and I can see that I have it easier." And you know, how can I help? Kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it's definitely helped me. I consider myself quite a sort of progressive person, but I, th- I think even at times I have, I have an ignorance of the way things work and the way things are, and uh, you know I need to sort of learn more. Um, so I, that's that's been one of my takeaways from from this episode with Deborah. So I just really appreciate her time and her honesty and 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 you know her, you know talking about these things with us. So yeah, it's a genuinely really really insightful episode. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, adhere to what you've said there, Jim, and. Um... I heartily agree with you all. Yeah, I mean, like you say, checking our privilege is so important to do. Um, and like you say, with two two white two white males who are doing this podcast, and you know, we it's up to us to try and make a difference as well. And 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 you know, like Deborah said, to to make a change, we need a a noisy minority, and you know, we need to yeah, we need to be part of that as well. Absolutely, absolutely. 
Um, well, listen, thank you, Deborah, so much for coming on. Mm. It was it was fascinating. And um, if you don't listen to the Guilty Feminist, where have you been? <laughs> yeah, eighty five million downloads. You've got to get on. in there now. I'd imagine. Yeah, then do go and check it out. And all the all the comedians that she mentioned as well. You know, go and check out their projects as well because incredible, incredible talents really mm. um, that deserve you know more um, appreciation. Absolutely, so, and we've been very privileged to have a few come on this podcast and you yeah, know, I know absolutely. that uh, there's a few more that we, we want to get on as well so yeah so you know, obviously if we can give people an opportunity to come and talk about that and about in fact if, if if you listen to us and, and there's you know there's someone that you think you'd like to hear on this podcast mm. um, tweet us and, and copy them in or mention and you know we'll try our best to do the same as well because you know our podcast is also driven by our listeners and if, if, if you want to hear from a certain person then we'll get them on and we'll chat to them and that's you know, I think that's kind of a way to go forward, really. We don't we don't just pick people that we think, oh, only we want to hear from. You know, there's loads of other people out there as well. So please do, you know, you, our listeners, you are a part of this as much as we are. So please do get involved and, and let us know who you want to hear on the podcast and we will make it happen because uh, that that's how it all should be. And that's the beauty of, you know, podcasts. We're all in this together. And, you know, you guys are as much a part of it as, as Giles and I. And how can people do that, Jim? Ah, <laughs> Seamless. I actually didn't even plan that, but yeah. Um, we are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. It's the same handle, which is... At BlankPod. Or you can email us. Our email address is... TheBlankPodcast2018 at gmail.com. And we would absolutely love to hear from you. Um, and that's it. Giles, have a, have a good week. And you, anything, anything exciting planned? It's half term. I mean, obviously, this will come out. It'll be after half term. So yeah. um, I know that... My children want to do indoor camping. So that means setting up a tent oh, okay. in the lounge. Yeah, it could be fun. We did it before, and I was the one who had to sleep in it. And it wasn't the most comfortable <laughs> night, I have to say. <laughs> it's, it's far worse because you know that there's a really comfortable bed upstairs <laughs> yeah, that you can't. a few steps away. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's, that's what you do for your children. It's exactly. 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 Make... Well, enjoy that. Yeah, thank you. Um, but other than that, no, I don't think there's a lot planned. Uh, well, how about yourself? No, um, every day is the same at the moment. So yeah. I don't want to sound like a football footballer in a post-match interview, but we are literally taking it one day as it as it comes at the moment, uh, which I think a lot of people are doing during lockdown. So, um, yeah. So in seven of those days, we'll be back with another episode of the Bank Podcast with another fantastic guest. Well, so, I was going to um, say, Jim, the, the lockdown, this lockdown three is a bit like a an ACL isn't it it's a bit like you've got you've on <laughs> yeah. the treatment table for a long time you yeah. can't get out there and play you're watching your teammates out there training every day and playing and you, you just yeah. our teammates in New Zealand you know yeah. training and, and yeah. playing and the Isle of Man and, uh, yeah exactly and we can't go out there and kick a ball mm. what, uh, how do we manage to cram football into every episode <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite a skill actually isn't it I know it's fantastic we, maybe we should do a football podcast maybe we should do yeah well, we've got a footballer coming up, actually, haven't we? Yeah. So I'll get to indulge my, my obsession with football. Anyway, that's enough rambling from us. Mm. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Have a safe week. And we'll see you again very soon on The Blank Podcast. <laughs>
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.